Episode 47 of the Shock Jock Knicks podcast on the Posting and Toasting Podcast Network. Sean St. Jacques here, back with you for another week of Knicks and NBA talk on the podcast. We're going to get to some more uh, Knicks NBA draft things this week as well. We're going to kind of highlight a, a player every week. That's kind of what it's turned into uh, during the pandemic over the last couple of weeks. We'll highlight a new player that's kind of come up in Knicks draft conversations later on in the show, and I'll give my thoughts on the current status of the NBA returning as I rock back in my chair in my small little studio at the house. Uh, But first and foremost on the show this week, a little bittersweet, but we got to hit the music here. Oh, yes. We got one more week of The Last Dance, the finale of The Book Club, episodes 9 and 10 this week. I'm going to miss the music. Uh, No question about that. I'm going to miss The Last Dance documentary even more than that. It ended, as we expected, with a flourish. Um, Let's, I guess, we'll start with episode 9, but specifically in episode 9 wanted to dive into a couple of the early details with I believe you know when, when it's interesting because when eight ends cha- another championship is in the books we're starting to and we'll, and we'll get to some of the backlash from the last two episodes in a second because there's quite a bit to talk about uh, with that and I'm not going to touch a ton on it but I do want to at least bring some of it to light and for those that are little in the dark or haven't, you know, been paying too much attention to it, you could have missed it. You know, it's been talked about quite a bit, but this is not exactly uh, a time where everyone's always digesting uh, media. So I I would say that probably, at least sports media, I should say. So the Horace Grant stuff, I'll touch on a little bit, uh, but let's start with, um, first and foremost, the the Jazz series, uh, first of all, the, the flu game as it were, in 1997. That's probably the biggest talking point of episode 9 of The Last Dance, and basically the explanation of why Jordan was sick before uh, Game 5, I guess it was at the time. Jordan's in Park City, Utah. He's hungry. The night before Game 5, the series is tied. The Jazz have a huge opportunity to go up in the series, possibly go on and win the series as well. Uh, The Bulls are trying to win their fifth title. And basically, uh, Jordan and his entourage blame it on a pizza pie that they ordered. Um, The trainer, Tim Grover, said that five guys came to deliver the pizza at Jordan's hotel room. Um, basically the reason they ordered the pizza was because it's Utah and nothing else was open. Um, so they ordered this pizza. I heard pizza hut being thrown around. It was possibly a pizza hut. Um, to be fair, that would make sense because it's Utah and it's 1997. (laughs) I can't imagine there's too many pizza parlors around in park city, Utah in 1997, let alone 20, even 2020, but let alone 19. 97. So, uh, they order the pizza. It gets to the hotel room. There's a whole entourage of guys. Apparently when I first heard that, I was like, well, maybe they want, maybe they know it's Jordan. They want his autograph, but they make it seem like that there was a plan 
to, uh, to, to, to make Jordan sick. It worked. Jordan ate it. Apparently, he was the only one that ate it, according to Michael Jordan himself. Um, and his entourage, actually, I think they corroborated that, or they, you know, they're on the same page with the story. And he became violently ill. I think they said around 2 or 3 in the morning, he starts throwing up. He feels terrible. Um, I, I can see why there's some doubt uh, for this. <laughs> it's, you know, uh, I don't think anyone's going to be changing this to the food poison game. I'll say that. Um, the reason that there's big speculation over this, and this is something I looked back at with the Chicago Tribune and a few other news sources, a few other... Uh, people that were covering the team at the time and are still covering the uh, sports, including the Bulls, and in and, and some capacity today in some regard, and some that just recapped the documentary that looked back themselves. And from what I gathered is basically, there's a little bit, to say the least, of a question mark here as to whether or not Michael Jordan and his entourage are telling the truth. Um, the tainted food has been out there as a rumor before, from what I've gathered, uh, from multiple people who have covered the team at the time and are still covering sports today. Um, so that makes me, you know, this didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, you know, at least that there's some validity. You know, if you're defending Jordan here, there's some validity to what he's saying, or at least it's been brought up before as a possibility. It's a, it's a, it's a possible theory. However, there's many other people that say that he had flu-like symptoms the day of the game. And food poisoning and flu-like symptoms are, you know, again, you're sick, but it's two very different sicks. <laughs> you're sick in different ways. From the diff- There's different symptoms for food poisoning as, a po- as opposed to having the flu. Not everyone that has the flu throws up. You know, not everyone that has food poisoning has a headache. You know, it's, it's a little bit, you know, that's, it's, I'm not a doctor, but that's a little fishy. Uh, regardless, you know, the, 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 the controversy that already has come from that has been interesting in itself, whether people believe the pizza story or not. It's a little, I think it's a little bit of a stretch, but it's, you know, not out of the realm of possibility, uh, which is probably why, you know, and again, if you're, if you're a pessimist, you don't believe Jordan, um, this is a perfect cover for drinking or gambling or whatever. But I maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I, the reason I say perfect is because it's it was a rumor at the time. So maybe they went with the rumor and that like that's our get out of jail free card. Regardless. Forty four minutes Jordan plays, he scores thirty eight points. And the Bulls beat the Jazz in game five. They go on, they beat the Jazz in game six, and they win the fifth title of the Jordan. Phil Jackson, Scottie Pippen, etc. era. Uh, a year later, I think this is arguably even more interesting, was the battle between Michael Jordan's Bulls and Reggie Miller's Pacers. Um, the Pacers, again, and this is the thing I forgot at the time, they were coached by Larry Bird. Larry Bird was the coach of that great Pacer team in 1998 that almost beat the Bulls in the Eastern Conference Finals. You could argue they they gave the Bulls a tougher fight than the Jazz did that season. Uh, because if, And we'll get to the, the finals in a second, but remember the Bulls went up 3-1 on the Jazz in that finals and then closed it out in Game 6 after the Jazz snuck out a win in Game 5. 
I remember on top of that, this was something that I think that not many people may remember as well, but the, was it game three? The Bulls won by like 50 points in game, like legitimately, you know, a, a ridiculous point margin in game three. They destroyed the Jazz and held like the best scoring offense to something like 56 points in game three. They won by like 40 points, something outrageous. I remember, I remember I had to look it up. I'm like, I, I saw the, you, you see the footage and you're like, there's no way that was the final score of game three. But I looked it up. I'm like, oh my God. You know, I, I didn't believe what I was seeing at first. That was a crazy realization from episode nine, uh, from that, from that series. But again, the Bulls Pacers rivalry, um, is arguably one of the best in the Eastern Conference's history. And that series goes to seven games, one of the few times the Jordan Bulls were taken to a Game 7, and it didn't look good for a while in Game 7. And I, I think Bob Costas and David Aldridge in the documentary, who are just two of the best of the business in the broadcasting game, even to this day, they're both phenomenal broadcasters uh, of our time. They were even saying, you know, during the game... Or even, you know, well, they said before the game something even more interesting, I think, which was that, you know, many people before the season thought, all right, the Jordan Bulls are probably going to not last past this season because of what Jerry Krause said about Phil Jackson and what Michael Jordan said about Phil Jackson. I wouldn't play for any other coach besides Phil Jackson. So many thought the Bulls dynasty would end off the court. Nobody ever thought about the possibility of it ending on the court because they were so good, and the Pacers had a chance to do that in Chicago, and they had the chance. They were up late in the game, and uh, a couple of big plays by Steve Kerr. Late in that game, Reggie Miller references a big shot by Steve Kerr that kind of took the wind out of the Pacers' sails late, even though they had the lead late in the game. I think I think the when they were going through the late stages, I think with four or five minutes ago, the Pacers are up. They have a lead. And Steve Kerr hits a shot, and now the Pacers are thinking, "Oh man, we had the momentum, and I think we—I think it was just taken away from us." That kind of a of a moment or a few moments in the game, and the Bulls basically uh, take over the last four minutes and send the Pacers home in Game Seven. Um, the The interesting response, even now that Reggie Miller gives, basically, is that he thinks his team was the better team. Um, despite losing, uh, and to be fair, you know, the best team doesn't always win. You could argue. And that's why we have upsets and, you know, basketball and in particular with March madness, with the NBA playoffs, uh, there are upsets, you know, there are teams we don't expect to, to win and they win. Um, but to say that your team wasn't better or that your team, despite losing to Michael Jordan's team was better than Michael Jordan's team, I think is where some people, uh, go on that. I think I think I can see where Reggie Miller's coming from. The t- the Pacers team that they had in '98 was loaded. It was a really good team. You know, Reggie Miller, Rick Smiths, Mark Jackson, Jalen Rose. Uh, the list goes on. It's a really good roster. I mean, there's no denying that. Um, but not good enough to beat the Bulls. And I, I think that's kind of where I stand on it. That. It's tough in the NBA, but I, I, I think for me, and I think this is why some of these debates over players and generations, it's just sometimes you got to look at who's won with what they've got around them. And 
think the ball. I think the Bulls in the end they they willed their way to the win, and despite how good you think your team was, you lost. So it's I think that's difficult for some people to put on uh, certain teams, but and certain players. But I I think in this case I don't think there's much denial on that. I think the Bulls team showed on the night they were the better team, and you know again the Pacers had their chance. They were up big, then they were up late. And they couldn't hold on to the lead. And the Bulls held serve in Game 7. And of course, would go to the NBA Finals in 1998. Where we see, uh, again, I'd argue a worse series competitively than the previous season. You, you, I, would, I would think, and I feel, I feel like if I, and again, I was, I was very young in 1998. So I didn't, <laughs> didn't consciously watch this game knowing what was going on. But looking back on it a couple of times throughout my sporting fandom, I I would say that, you know, you would think going into that 98 series, the Jazz have a better shot at beating the Bulls. The Bulls were seemingly on empty. Nobody knew how much longer this was going to last, not only because of the Jerry Krause stuff, but, you know, a lot of these guys are getting up there. These, these guys are tradable assets. They could be getting to the end of their careers, although we talk about why many of the Bulls didn't think that in a second. But, um... The Jazz were still in their prime. It felt like it was still a prime team. They got a second chance to beat the Bulls, uh, but it was the same story. Six games. Jordan has uh, the push off, if you will, in Game Six. I love, I love how Bob Costas uh, basically uh, describes the push on the on the game winning jump shot in Game Six, which is basically he he sat, you know. He basically, as a uh, hostess, sat uh, Russell at his table. Uh, Byron Russell. I, I, I thought, or uh, Brian Russell. That was such a, um, a perfect way of putting it. I, I thought it was. I, I, for anyone that says it was a push, holy smokes! I, I a reach to say the least. I, the fact that you would expect that to be called. You can say, well, it's Michael Jordan. It's not going to be called. It's not a foul. I, it's unbelievable that people still argue that it is a foul it's ridiculous it's absolutely and, and if anyone does they're trolling you so that's the <laughs> that's the bottom line there but the moment it's an iconic moment he, jordan gets the step back he gets the space he knocks down the jumper he breaks utah jazz hearts again after by the way getting a big steal on the previous possession that's that's the play that gets lost in the shuffle the big steal on carl malone coming from the weak side where Malone doesn't expect him to be there. Jordan doesn't follow his uh, the player he's guarding. He sticks with Carl Malone knowing he's going to drive baseline, and he rips it away from him. It's a, just a genius play from Michael Jordan, and then he ends up going on and hitting the game-winning shot at the other. He does it on both ends, one final time for the Bulls, and the Bulls win their sixth NBA championship. And again, at the... At you know, at the end, it's 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 the shot. You know, kind of diving into episode ten a little bit too, but it's it's the it's the amazing iconic moment one more time in Utah to once again deny the Jazz uh, a title. One great stat that I tweeted out that I thought people again are, are going to ignore in all these debates and stuff like that. Michael Jordan eliminated twenty Hall of Fame players in his NBA career from the playoffs. Twenty of them. I mean, that's outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. 
And again, the players he denied championships, almost single-handedly. You know, Carl Malone and John Stockton, Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley. It's just insane. And the list goes on. It's just, it's absolutely incredible. So, those are the kind of things people forget about, it seems, in these debates, but it's it's insane. It's just insane. And and again, the the beef between Jordan and Russell from episode 9 is extremely fun uh, to watch. I mean, Jordan goes and, you know, visits John Stockton and Carl Malone when they were in town to play the Bulls, you know. That to me shows that Jordan has respect for John Stockton and Carl Malone as players. Obviously, it makes a little bit of sense as well because they were all on the dream team together. So I'm sure they have friendships and respect for each other from the games they played, you know, the practices they had in Barcelona because they were teammates with each other. But the great quote, Jordan Jordan's quote uh, from the documentary is fantastic. It's from uh, the Chicago Tribune breaks it down if you want to go take a further look at it. But here's the quote. Jordan says, quote, and this kid, uh, Brian, excuse me, and this kid, Brian Russell, comes up to me and he says, man, why you quit? Why you quit? Now you knew I could guard your ass. You had to quit, Jordan says. I said, Carl, you need to talk to this dude, man, <laughs> Malone said. Oh, he's just a rookie. This was Car- that, That's Carl Malone. But from that point on, he's been on my list. So, so oh, he's just a young rookie. Was Carl Malone trying to defend Russell? And then Jordan replies, but from that point on, says this in the documentary, he's been on my list. I I mean, that's just classic Michael Jordan, uh, you know, mentality monster, if you will, to uh, get a a pair, you know, to turn a phrase from uh, the great Jurgen Klopp, who's the manager of my favorite soccer team, favorite football club, Liverpool. Uh, It's it's such a funny, uh, but so true you know, the, the, the way that Michael Jordan thinks and you know, how true to himself he is in that regard. So I thought that was phenomenal. The other great story from episode nine, um, is a lot more sad. Um, the, the story of Steve Kerr losing his dad, um, was really one that I didn't expect to be in the documentary. I must say, I, I, I had heard of this story before. Um, I didn't think that they were, you know, again, I I thought they would dive into Steve Kerr. You know, obviously he's hit some huge shots. He was a big part of these Bulls teams, especially during the second three-peat. He's, he's, you know, obviously he's in the main picture for the documentary, The Last Dance. So I knew at some point, you know, when you're on the, you know, when you're on the movie poster, at some point you're going to get a big mention in the documentary. Steve Kerr's, you know, again, Steve Kerr is sprinkled throughout the documentary, but we really dive into his story in episode nine. Uh, and then it's obviously finished off with his big moments that we see in episode 10 during that final run when he hits the big shot in the playoffs. So th- this was a tough one to, to hear, to be honest. It's a very tragic story. Um, obviously, you know, hearing about Jordan's dad dying, even though despite all the you know potential controversy that people like to bring up around that, it's heartbreaking to hear that. It's 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 another you know it's another form of heartbreak to hear Steve Kerr's story. Uh, you know, he, you know, Steve Kerr was 18 years old at the time, uh, lost his dad who was shot, uh, Malcolm Kerr twice in the back of the head by a terrorist when he came out of an elevator. Um, for those that didn't watch the documentary, first of all, uh, you probably should have skipped ahead already. We've talked about this a couple of times on the show. If you're not part of the book club officially, it means you haven't watched the documentary. You should go watch it before you continue on. But 
regardless, uh, this is just really for context. Uh, Steve Kerr's dad was a was a professor, uh, big into the world of education, and he was basically he, he had taken a job overseas teaching, and you know what was killed uh, in that line of work because uh, he was in a very uh, torn part of the world at the time, and you know, I don't want to dive too much deeper into it. It's something that you really got to watch to to f- further understand. Um, you know, I, it was really difficult to see Steve Kerr talk about it. I, I must say, it was it was arguably um, the saddest part of the whole documentary. Um, it was really difficult to see Steve Kerr reacting to that um in my opinion i i was very um i felt for steve in that moment um you know again jordan yeah god you know the other the other part from nine that i almost forgot about you know the, the jordan relationship with the security guard um is another really heartbreaking story in episode nine i just another one both of these, they're on par with each other. They're both just devastating. Um, Jordan, you know, obviously his father passes away. There's the story earlier in the documentary of Michael Jordan um, playing the first game, winning the first championship, you know, without his dad there, who had been through a lot with him. Um, you know, all those things are very tough to, you know... To to hear, um, the Gus Lett story is is right up there. Um, Gus Lett was a security guard, former Chicago police officer. He died in two thousand, but uh, from cancer, I believe, uh, which is what he was said to have in the documentary. You know, Gus Lett ends up being a father figure to Jordan. He's traveling with him all over the place. He always has to be there with him at the games. He's sitting next to him uh, in a couple of shots that they show. Jordan's father obviously was also murdered. Um, and there were times where Michael Jordan would call Let in the middle of the night and would just cry to him on the phone, you know, after his dad's death. And um, Jordan, you know, in the end was also there for Let when he had, and at the Chicago Tribune again really details this well. I believe it was lung cancer, uh, which Gus Lett had at the time, and they won the, you know, a lot of the games they won in that final couple of seasons were for, especially after Gus Lett came back, he left the, you know, the job for a while, came back, and, and the Bulls were winning games, especially Jordan was playing for, for Gus, basically. Um, and when Gus had lung cancer, Jordan, you know, was there for him like Gus was there uh, in return. So really, you know, uh gut-wrenching stories, but stuff that had to be in the documentary to get the whole picture of the mindset of a lot of the guys at the time going into these huge games in the NBA playoffs. It's crazy how much things, you know, how many people, how, how, how many things can change your life in such a quick period of time. And yeah, just crazy to read more into that. Um, on a lighter note, uh, probably my favorite, uh, scene from the documentary in episode nine is probably, uh, the scene after, uh, and, and again, there's a couple of, there's, you know, one of the great shots is of, uh, Larry Bird stone faced after Reggie Miller hits the 
go-ahead three in Game 4 of the 98 Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, everyone realized, you know, you're up two. Uh, there's 0.7 seconds left when Michael Jordan's got the, the ball. <laughs> it's a great shot of everyone going crazy and Larry Bird realizing, all right, the game's not over yet, though, and Jordan almost makes the shot at the other end. Uh, it rimmed out. It looks like it's going in, even when you watch it back. It looks like the ball's going right into the basket, but it rims out, and the and the Pacers ended up tying the series at the time. Of course, the Bulls went on and won the series. After they win the series... Um, Jordan and Bird meet back, you know, backstage, if you will. They they meet uh in you know by the locker rooms after the game, and they're cursing at each other, <laughs> and basically just showing you know respect. And then Michael says, "Now you got to go work on that golf game of yours." To Larry Bird as he uh, walks away, and again, they're they're dream team teammates as well, which makes it even uh, more awesome to watch that documentary or that scene in the documentary i thought that was great um episode 10 you know because again i'm running i'm already running out of time i've been talking so much about nine and a splash of 10 here episode 10 is the is a great um is a great finish to the documentary i thought again the shot jordan over russell um the 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 great um the scene of of jerry reinsdorf basically are talking about why he gave Jacks Phil Jackson the second chance at the end of the sixth championship run, uh, despite Jerry Krause coming out and saying no matter what, Jer- Phil Jackson's not going to coach the team next season, how, you know, uh, basically there was a, even, a you know, Ryan Storch basically trying to save this dynasty for at least one more year, and in the end, Phil Jackson uh, was told that you know, we're probably going to, we want you, we want Michael, but we don't want anybody else. And they wanted to rebuild around Michael and they thought they could do it. And Phil Jackson said, I'm not sticking around. Phil Jackson goes on, wins another three P with the Kobe Shaq Lakers and wins two more with Kobe Pau Gasol and company in 2009, 2010 leaves coaching with 11 championships. So, uh, not the best decision looking back on it by the bulls who, by the way, haven't been to an NBA Finals uh, since 1998. That's crazy to think about when you watch this documentary. But if you are my age, you know why. So <laughs> it's not too hard to figure out. Um, episode 10 finishes in great style. Again, the, the the great story of of how the Bulls broke up is really interesting. Uh, Pippin's um, side of it. Uh, how he ends up being gracious when it comes to Kraus, despite their differences over his over what he should have been paid and things like that. And um, Pippen basically says, "quote I've got a, I've had a lot of great people in my life, and that's why my success happened. I played with Phil Jackson, the greatest coach of all time; Michael Jordan, the greatest player of all time; Jerry Kraus, obviously the greatest general manager in the game." End quote. So you can see the the admiration that he has for Jerry Kraus, despite all the crap that he said about him. You could tell that they don't like each other or they didn't like each other. And Scotty Pippen and Michael Jordan, I think still don't like him, <laughs> but they clearly had some respect for him. At least Scotty did. Uh, Jordan didn't really say anything about Kraus, but at least Scotty showed, at least in the documentary publicly that he has some respect for what Jerry Kraus did. Take it, take it or leave it uh, in that case. But I had, I can't leave you without the WWE Dennis Rodman story 
from episode 10, which was just a huge monkey wrench that only Dennis Rodman can throw into a documentary like this or into a season like this. I thought it was so phenomenal. The detour, as it's called, that Carmen Electra describes. Um, it's, I believe it was in Detroit, which, by the way, is obviously where Dennis Rodman used to play. It's a little ironic um, as well. So between games three and four of the finals, so the Bulls are up 2-1. They just destroyed the Jazz in game three. So, and basically he does a pro wrestling show with Hulk Hogan, makes 250 grand, which is insane. Like, think about that at the time. That's an insane amount of money for one appearance. And that's that day's, that's like two decades ago's dollars. That's insane. So, (laughs) for one appearance. So, again, I thought that was incredible. And it's during the finals. Um, Rodman sneaks out the side door at the United Center when he comes back. Uh, I believe it was, he'd come back, he's practicing. He got, you know punished by the team a little bit for 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 missing uh or for doing what he did his little stunt he gets punished at practice and to leave the building to go home the and it's a great little uh, shot that they have with the media person at the time basically trying to facilitate rodman's escape he sneaks out a side door at the united center sprinting up the stairs to avoid answering questions from i think the chicago tribune said 300 reporters or so um and the shot of rodman leaving Jump, jumping into a truck, driving away, and then the scene of reporters with camera and everyone just running back, like it was like the running of the bulls. Just in, literally, you know, pun intended. Incredible. It's just, you can't write this stuff. It was an amazing, uh, it, it's, again, the Robin stuff's arguably the best stuff in the documentary. The, the, ba- the behind the scenes footage is arguably the best of the documentary when it involves Dennis Rodman. It's so, it's so perfect. It's amazing how well done that part of the documentary is. Uh, if I ever get a chance to rewatch it, and the way the pandemic's going, I probably will have a chance to watch this whole documentary again. Um, I'm definitely watching a lot of the Dennis Rodman parts again, because it's just, it's too much fun. Um, I'll leave you with this on The Last Dance, because I've already gone over my time I wanted to do uh, and set aside for this, but the the last couple of scenes, I think, are really telling about what the Bulls meant and still mean to the NBA, and what Michael Jordan meant and still means to the NBA. Um, there's a fan at the Bulls Championship Parade in 1998 in Grant Park. The quote from the fan is, quote, I want to tell Jerry Reinsdorf he better bring them back because if he doesn't, we're going to run him out of town on a rail. Now, it's a great quote. It leads me to, the, to basically Michael Jordan's big final contribution to the documentary. Which is basically that he he wanted to come back. He wanted to come back, and and everyone would sign. Everyone would sign a one year deal, right? You'd sign, like Steve Kerr's going to sign a one year deal. Scottie Pippen and and you know all the supporting Dennis Rodman. They're all going to sign a one year deal, and they're going to come back, and they're going to go for seven. I get that. 
it was it was nice to hear Michael Jordan say that. It made sense that he said that. You know, it's that I, we got next mentality. We won. We're staying on the court. Who's going to come after us? And they wanted that shot. And remember, remember the next season, 98-99 was a shortened season. And the Knicks made it to the finals. They beat the Pacers who thought they'd see the Bulls. They didn't see the Bulls. They, they took the Knicks lightly. The Knicks beat them and then went all the way to the finals and lost to Tim Duncan, David Robinson, and the Greg Popovich coach San Antonio Spurs, the young guns from the Western Conference at the time. The Jazz didn't even make it back to the NBA Finals. So it was there for the Bulls. It really was, but they didn't pull the trigger on bringing everybody back. And clearly that still means a lot to Michael Jordan. And I would guess a lot of those other guys as well. They could have maybe had one more shot at it. Jordan retires again, stays out two years, and then he has those two years in Washington that, by the way, not even touched on in the documentary. I get that, you know, it's a different team. It's not the same story. Um, but you told the other parts of the Jordan story. You know, you told about talked about his UNC days for context. I was a little surprised they didn't mention anything about the Wizards, even at the end. Um, you know, the little, even just in a little thing at the end, just a little blurb where they say where everybody, you know, what happens, you know, Scottie Pippen gets traded, Dennis Rodman gets released, Steve Kerr gets traded, by the way, goes on and wins more titles with the Spurs, by the way, Steve Kerr does. Um, and obviously now is a championship coach with the Warriors, but I was a little surprised they didn't mention a little blur about the Wizards. Um, and then on top of that, the rebuild the final the final quote and the bulls began to rebuild and they haven't stopped since the bulls fans are now 22 years removed from their last trip to the nba finals and it continues to be a just a mess in chicago for the bulls and it's just amazing how quickly things can change and the Bulls, again, they had some good teams with, you know, the Derrick Rose, Taj Gibson, Joakim Noah, you know, team, the Ben Gordon teams were okay. And, you know, they made the playoffs and they went on a couple of little runs and stuff like that, but they never got back. They've never been back since Jordan left to the NBA finals. That is remarkable in itself. Six straight, you know, not six straight, six championships in eight years and then no trips to the finals for two decades crazy stuff uh what a documentary amazing we got a rat yet i uh, the music's playing me out here we gotta wrap it up um thank you guys for doing this along with me this is kind of a spur of the moment thing i enjoyed it i hope you guys did as well i really enjoyed uh watching the last dance weekend we got kind of don't know what I'm going to be doing with myself now for the next couple of weeks. We got a big segment to fill on the show now. We're, we're, we're going to have to talk about something else now. But the documentary is over. Let me know what you guys thought about the documentary. Let me know what you guys thought about the book club. We're going to close the book on this one for now. Uh, let me know if you guys want to do this again with something else. This is something else we can do on the show if you want during this pandemic. Um, I'll take a break here. We'll talk a little Horace Grant. A little Horace Grant. That's, this will be the last of the last dance crap for now. Uh, and we'll talk about some of the Knicks NBA draft bookings on different prospects and how the NBA is going to come back 
next on the Shock Shock Knicks podcast on the Posting and Toasting Podcast Network. All right, one quick thing on Horace Grant. I, I, I was... I had to end that first segment at some point. I already went well over uh, where I wanted to be, but you have to. It's the last dance. We make these sacrifices uh, for content. So before I fully move on uh, from the last dance, one quick thing, Horace Grant and Michael Jordan coming out with these, you know, he's a snitch. No, Jordan, you're a snitch. No, Horace, you're a snitch. Must be nice, right? you Horace Grant has not been in the news for, for, for I mean, years. And to be, to be fair, he gets bashed in the documentary as, as a snitch uh, for the Jordan Rules book that came out about Michael Jordan. A very interesting part of the documentary um, about, you know, basically the, the ins and outs of, of the away from the court Michael Jordan. That kind of gets Jordan in a little bit of trouble during his playing career and took away his perfect image, if you will. The book kind of went in a different direction for what the public thought Michael Jordan was. And Horace Grant basically comes out and says, I didn't, I didn't tell anybody anything. They're lying. And then Jordan says, you did. And then Horace Grant said, no, you told, you told everybody you were, you snitched. Who cares? (laughs) That's where I fall on it. A lot of people who have watched the documentary asked me about that, what I thought of that. Who cares? I, that's what I kept writing back. A couple of buddies of mine who've been uh, watching the documentary, a couple of people have, who have, uh, you know, on Twitter uh, through that link to me, uh, one in a message and one in a reply, I think, or something like that. And I, I'm thinking, who cares? I mean, it doesn't matter. They're just, it's more publicity for the documentary, if anything. You know, for all I know, they they called each other and they they are they orchestrated. Who cares? Even if they did, who cares? Doesn't matter. You're a snitch. I'm a snitch. We're all snitches. Who cares? You know, no one lost their juice box. No one lost any money. You know, no one got cut in the lunch line. It's still Chicken Finger Day on the Wednesdays. Can we calm down? Like seriously, the fact that this led first take, I think, tells you all you need to know about first take. It tells you all you need to know about where we are in sports right now with this pandemic. Who cares? It doesn't need to be talked about. If you care that much, holy smokes, watch something on Netflix, please. And don't let your don't let it go to your head. Oh my gosh. It's just just crazy, crazy stuff. Alright. We close the book on the last dance. Let's get back into some Knicks talk and some NBA talk quickly to finish the show. Couple of quick hits. Um, the, the stuff about Leon Rose that came out uh, earlier this week, I believe it was yesterday, actually, as you're listening to the podcast. So apparently, um, you know, this the headline for the New York Post, and there's a couple other people that have written about this, I think, as well, was basically that Leon Rose's awkward rebuild of the Knicks front office is applauded around the NBA. And. Listen, I, I, I get where they're coming from here. You know, obviously, Leon Rose has made a couple of moves during um, the pandemic. He's kept Scott Perry, which was, I think, important at the time. Um, you know, Rose decided to pick up the option on, on Scott Perry's contract for next season. And then the New York Post, this from the New York Post, basically says, surprisingly, is not expected to retain... 
Perry's two major scouting hires from 2017. Assistant GM Gerald Matkins and pro personnel player director Harold Ellis. So he's going to let those expire, but Rose added longtime Jazz College scout Walt Perrin and former Nets GM, or excuse me, former Nets assistant GM Frank Zanin, who arrives from Oklahoma City. Basically, Perrin is, again, all from the New York Post. He's going to run the scouting for college players. Zanin is going to handle the pro scouts. And, you know, many are applauding what Rose is doing here. You know, surrounding himself with some guys that are just going to pluck these, these talented players out and put them on the radar for the Knicks. Listen, the awkward side of this is simple. We're in a pandemic. This, none of these decisions are going to be easy decisions for anybody involved. So that, boom, done. That's finished. The second part is, on paper, this looks great. This looks great for the Knicks. Rose is making some good decisions here. These guys clearly, I mean, they've got a great track record. There's been a number of guys around the league who are, you know, happy with the Knicks' decisions for whatever that's worth. They like the way that, you know, Rose has handled himself so much. They like the way that these other guys that he's hired, Perrin and Zanin, uh, handle themselves as well. I, 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 maybe because I'm, you know, pessimistic Nick fan here. Okay, this is great, but, you know, Phil Jackson was supposed to solve all our problems a couple of years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now, again, he, was, he, he had a job that he'd never done before, so I get that. But we, we get sold these bill of goods every year. So, again, the Knicks are going down the right path. The league says the Knicks are going down the right path. I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. So, that that's it's great. I'm happy that Leon Rose is getting some public pu- positive public Knicks publicity. Easier said, uh, easier said there. Or rather, uh, easier done than said. But what I'll say is this. Just, d- it, that's all it is. It's good publicity for the Knicks, which again is a win for the Knicks because the Knicks don't always get good publicity. It's bad enough when they embarrass the team off the court. But for but that's all it is. It's a small win for the Knicks. We'll see if, if this small win turns into some big wins later on down the road. That's all we can do. We can support the decisions. Just, you know, again, see what happens moving forward. That's all that's all the Knicks can do in this situation. Last thing on the Knicks, last of these quick Knicks hits here, the the prospect, and, and it seems like we're going to be doing this every week now, just because it's fun. I enjoy doing it. I, I'm a college guy. You guys that follow the show know that. I'm, I cover college basketball a lot throughout my, my career in sports uh, media and broadcasting. So I've had an opportunity to see a lot of these kids over the years, and I've had the opportunity to interview some of these kids over the years through covering college basketball and basketball in general. So the player that's being linked, if you will, with the Knicks this week is Iowa State point guard Tyrese Halliburton, um, who basically came out and said, quote, being in New York, this is from uh, ESPN's The Jump, being in New York, they always talk about the pressure being in Nick. This is Halliburton on Tuesday. I feel like no matter where I go, the pressure I put on myself is more than I'll get from anywhere, no matter where I'm at. That pressure is prominent, and it will be more from me. I'm ready to play anywhere, end quote. 
very agent answer. It's very much out of the agent's uh, mouth there. I, that's not how Tyrese Halliburton really talks. That's not really his personality. Um, I get the determination thing. I get that. You know, he puts a lot of pressure on us. That's that's normal. But that's that was a very agent told me to say that kind of an answer, in my opinion, to this question. Um, and again, it's on ESPN's The Jump, so you know it makes sense that he would say something like that. It's it's the right thing to say, is what basically what I'm trying to say. But it's not really like if 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 you're interviewing Tyrese Halliburton in a locker room, he's probably not going to say that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Circumstances have a lot to do with what he just said there. He's 20 years old. He's a one and done prospect out of Iowa State. Played it played in a good program, but with a team that really faltered down the stretch last season. Now, for those that didn't follow college basketball last season, you might not even know who this kid is, to be honest with you, which is not how it was supposed to be for Iowa State last year. Iowa State had a good team at the start of the season. He had gotten hurt early in, earlier in his college career. He was off to a phenomenal start to the season. I got to see him play uh, Seton Hall twice, and that's my alma mater. Uh, so I was, you know, had a close eye in both of those games, which they split. Seton Hall won when they played in the Bahamas, and then Seton Hall went to Iowa State, and Iowa State, uh, despite Seton Hall, you know, the, Seton Hall was down a couple guys that night through injury. Uh, Iowa State won both times Seton Hall was ranked. Nobody really heard of Iowa State after that night throughout the rest of the season. That was by far Iowa State's best performance. Those two games were arguably Tyrese Halliburton's best performances of the season. And he basically missed the rest of the year through injuries. So there's a couple of notes to to pick up on here. Halliburton out of high school was just a three-star recruit. Um, Didn't really get to go to any of the youth circuits. Didn't really do much with the academies. Uh, played for his high school in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Um, local youth programs were part of his uh, development as well. And now he could be a top 10 pick. Here's some of his stats from Iowa State. And I'll dive into what I what I liked and what I didn't like from his play. Um, great three-point shooter. Shot 43% in college. Great scorer. Great passer. 15 points, six and a half assists per game. And I think he had almost six rebounds a game as well. Kid Kid is a triple-double threat. He really can do it all on the basketball court. He's a taller guy. I think he's 6'5". Little lanky for his height. He kind of, you know, body type. He reminds me of a young Reggie Miller. He really does. But... He he doesn't play like that. It's not he's not a he's not just a shooter. He's he's a good athlete. He can put the ball on the floor. You know, obviously, again, don't take that as a you know. I'm talking body type with Reggie Mill. I'm not talking play uh, as much in that regard. Could be a top ten pick. The Knicks could easily consider him. He's a point guard. The Knicks need to hit well with that position. Here's here's a couple of things that I that I picked up on him um, during his time with Iowa State, which again was not that long. 
Again, 6'5", 175 pounds. He, he, he's got a lot of things that are positive. I, I, I will say that. Again, I love he, he can fill out that body, put some muscle on, and be a really tough player to deal with at the point guard position in the NBA. He's a good shooter. Could be a great shooter one day. He really can be. He's a good athlete. I think one thing that gets a little bit lost with him that that I think no, not enough people realize is how smart he is. He's a really smart basketball player. Does a lot of good things on both ends of the floor. He's also got a pretty long wingspan, as you might expect, at 6'5". He is a very tough defender to go up against at times, as well, and really could end up being a good two-way point guard in that regard. Could really put in the work on the offensive end of the floor, and on top of that, can defend. So I, I think that he's a really strong prospect. Um, for where the point guard position is going... Um, that's something that's going to be really a big plus if you're looking at positives with Tyrese Halliburton, a guy that the Knicks easily could not only have on their radar, but if things go go against them, in my opinion, if they don't get Cole Anthony or LaMelo Ball, Tyrese Halliburton might be a guy that's at the top of their list. You never know. Now, there, there's two big things that, I, that I'm not a fan of with Tyrese Halliburton. Number one is, again, he's a great shooter, and I think I think a number of different guys have been talking about that. You know, ESPN, I think the New York Post wrote something about this as well. The it's not the touch for Halliburton with when it comes to his shooting. He can also shoot from very far out. He's got good range. It's the mechanics. The 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 way he shoots the ball is a little off. It's not it's not what you'd want for an NBA player. At his size, his it takes him a long time to get the ball out. You know, it's a slow release, and on top of that, because his arms are long, he's got a low release point. And I'm pretty sure that I think the New York Post is is. is I remember watching the games with him at the time and thinking, man, like he doesn't he doesn't really put the ball up that high when he shoots. And I, I others have picked up on it. I mean, they, again, they're paid to do it more than I'm paid. To do it, but it's it's something that that at the that the next level is probably not going to work out well. So, and again, again, top ten prospect probably without a question in this draft, especially at the point guard position. He's a top five guy, no question about that. At the guard position, but these are little things. One thing I didn't love about him as a college player, and this is you know nitpicking to say the least. There were a lot of times when he was playing in, and again, these are not the biggest of the big games. He didn't have time to mature during the season. But there were a lot of games where Tyrese Halliburton makes a shot, hits a, you know, hits a mid-range, hits a three, dunks the ball, makes a good pass. And as soon as he, as soon as the play is completed, he starts to do a celebration. It got to the point where ESPN was actually highlighting all of his celebrations that he was doing throughout the Bahamas tournament. So he'd hit a three, and then he's looking at the bench as he's going back on the other on defense, and he's got a phone. He's, he's holding a phone up. So there's clearly a you know, long distance call, you know that kind of a thing. As fun as that is, that is not great in my opinion. I don't love that. The fact that he's got a celebration for every time he makes a play. Again, he loves to play the game. He's got he's passionate. I don't I don't love that. 
on the court. Get back on defense. You know, maybe that's old school of me. I get that. You know, guys should be celebrating. I get that. But every time you make a shot, every time you make a good pass, he's doing something. I don't love that. You know, it gets old every time you do it. And there were times, you know, Iowa State in a big game early last season was was down, I think by eight in a game. He hits a shot and he's holding up the phone. And it's like, you guys are down. You're like, it doesn't look like you guys are going to win this game. Like, get back on D. You guys need to stop right now. You know, and there were a couple times, you know, Seton Hall, Iowa State, especially that first game when Seton Hall was healthy, fully, everyone was there, everyone ready to go. It was a very good Seton Hall team. I'm, I'm not just saying that, not you know, I, not because of my bias. They were very good last year. You know, one of the best teams in the country, Big East champions last season. There were times where Seton Hall was getting easy buckets on the other end because Iowa State wasn't getting back on defense. You know, end-to-end, but not because, you know, Iowa State is a bad defensive team because they weren't getting back. And I'm not going to put that all on Tyrese Halliburton. He's one guy. But leaders on the team don't allow that stuff to happen. It's a nitpick. It's a small thing. But it's something that I caught. And, And again, you see highlights of him too some of the other games before he got hurt last season that's what you'd see was a lot of those celebrations and it's like oh he's still doing that like (laughs) they lost that game like why is he doing that now don't look at one one thing that you shouldn't knock Tyrese Halliburton for is he again he picks up the injury Iowa State fell off a cliff after this kid got hurt so that, that just shows you talent-wise, and obviously more than just talent, how important he was to Iowa State last season. Critical to their success. They're an NCAA tournament team, a lock in the NCAA tournament team with this kid ready to go. He gets hurt, and I was looking at this yesterday. I think Iowa State finished with, I want to say, I, I want to look it back up. I think they only won 12 games last year. And I remember thinking, that can't be right. That can't be right. There's no way. And I look back, and I'm looking at that. They won, They were 12-20 and 20 last year. I mean, that's insane. For as, for as good of a start as they got off to, they finished 9th out of 10th in the Big 12. And, and, and it was they plummeted. They absolutely plummeted without Tyrese Halliburton in the lineup. So, again, it tells you how important he was as a player for this team. You know, early in the season, you know, they played Michigan very tough. They beat Alabama. They split with Seton Hall. They lost at Iowa. I'm sorry, at home to Iowa. And, again, Iowa was a really good team. They beat Oklahoma. But they lost to, you know, Florida A&M, you know, for example. And that was when, you know, the injury started to take hold on Halliburton. And after they beat... Uh, Seton Hall at the time when they won that game they were you know only five and three but they'd beaten some good teams they played some good competition they didn't win you know they won seven games the rest of the season without this kid it's you know again crazy to think about and I can tell you this right now they went on one two four-game losing streaks without this kid in the lineup. 
So again, he can be very valuable to the Knicks. But I worry about the injury. I worry about the shooting uh, mechanics on his shot. And on top of that, I worry a little bit about his attitude. I, I want to see where he would be at. He goes, Knicks fans are not going to be happy, you know, when it's 55-45 and he hits a three and he's got, you know, a hand up and he's going nuts and it's like, all right, you know, we're playing, a, you know, it's the Pacers here. You got to kind of get, you know, long way to go, <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. NBA games, a lot of things can change in an NBA game, so... I don't know. One of those things. Before I get out of here, and this is kind of a longer show than I anticipated today, so I appreciate you guys bearing with me on this one. Quick thing on the NBA coming back that I want to touch on. I'm not going to go nuts on this. The latest stuff coming out, uh, the Staples Center in LA has expressed interest in hosting games after the hiatus is done. Uh, According to multiple sources that told ESPN, NBA teams are expecting guidelines on June 1st for players returns to uh, facilities. Some facilities are open. Some are not practices are not happening yet. So it's, you know, they're trying to make the baby steps to getting the NBA back. Of course, they're still considering the two site format in Walt Disney's Orlando, uh, excuse me, Walt Disney world in Orlando and Las Vegas as a possible option for Eastern and Western conference teams. And, there's still the, you know, the other big hiccups that could come up with players all over the world having to come back to the NBA or, you know, uh, guys coming out of quarantine. Can they follow the guidelines and, and things like that? This is what I've been, you know, talking with multiple people about um, over the last couple of weeks. And I'm not sure if, I, if I've addressed my thoughts on, you know, all of the NBA's plans on the show, but I want to touch on one quick thing here. Someone who's a fan of all sports, I I follow a lot of sports that are all around the world, not just in the United States as as a fan, as I've mentioned on the show before. There are leagues that are back in other parts of the world. The German Bundesliga, the soccer league in Germany, is back. They already played a week's worth of games. They're going to be back again this weekend for another slate of games, and they plan on finishing their season. I think they've got nine, eight or nine weeks left. They plan on finishing. South Korean's Baseball League is back. They plan on finishing their season. They're not the United States. There's a lot of other leagues that are close to coming back in other parts of the world for a lot of different sports that are, you know pretty spread out too. Not maybe not as spread out as the NBA. America's a big country, but pretty darn spread out. And they're trying to find a way to come back for soccer, for baseball, for you name it. They're trying to figure it out. The problem that America has, and this is not a, you know, a, a take. This is uh, legit. Is the United States is not where it needs to be for testing the coronavirus pandemic. They're they're not there. There's not enough testing to go around in this country. And these guys, again, in the Bundesliga, these German players, sorry, the players that are in the German league, I should say, are being tested twice a week for coronavirus. And if they test positive, 
they are quarantined by themselves for 14 days while the team goes on. It's treated like an injury. And they can only come back if they get two negative tests. So they go through the two weeks. They're eligible for a test. If they get a negative test, they get another test. If they're negative again, they can rejoin the team. Now, in my opinion, I think that's very well done. And the German government approved it. And I was watching German soccer last weekend. And I will do so again this weekend because I'm a big soccer fan. The, the United States is not even close to that right now. Not even close. Could you imagine giving the NBA, who by the way have 10 more teams than the Bundesliga, two tests a week. Now to be fair, there are less players per roster. You know, if you're talking about a soccer team in Europe or even in the United States, and again, the MLS is throwing around similar ideas, NWSL, the Women's Soccer League in America, throwing around similar ideas of coming back. So you're talking about 22, roughly, players on a roster for a soccer team. It's, it's a few less than that per NBA team. But there's more teams in the NBA. You're, you're, I mean, it's, that's the way it's got to happen. And in the United States can't even get certain amount of tests for civilians, for, for workers that are vital to getting this country back on track. And now they're expected to, uh, the, the NBA, I mean, uh, how can they figure this out? I mean, that's the key. You've got to have enough testing. Because you need, number one, the players need to feel like they're in a safe environment. And the players' families have to feel like they're in a safe environment. Because they they're probably going to be going with these guys to wherever they end up playing. This is the problem with Major League Baseball's players are, are very concerned. I'm sure the NBA players as well. What if my family come with me and they contract the virus? What if I contract it and I give it to my family? You know, Mike Trout the baseball player has a baby on the way. His wife's pregnant. I'm sure there's NBA players that have babies on the way. I know there's been multiple soccer players that I follow that during this have had a child. What are they supposed to do? And that's why I think if, if, if the NBA can get to where Germany can with the protocol, it's possible. But the problem is they can't because of the way it's being handled by the government. And there's really no debating that. There's a good chance you're listening to this and you can't get tested. I know I can't. I can't find a test. That's why we're trying to flatten the curve because we don't have it. We don't have testing. It, it, it's, it's one of those things. It's so easier said than done because we're further behind than some of these other countries. I had somebody, and I'll leave you on this. I had somebody ask me the other day, how the heck is Germany playing and we're not? Because they know what the heck they're doing. Angela Merkel handled it perfectly over there, as good as you can. They limited the amount of cases. They've limited the amount of deaths. Look up the numbers. And again, Germany is a much smaller country in population than the United States. But look at the numbers. It's not even close. It's, it's appalling to me how people that people are so naive at times 
with the way they think about America these days. It's incredible. But it's the way it is. And if you want your NBA back, testing is the key. And I'm not seeing it enough being talked about in this conversation. If you want it back, you're going to need to get testing back first. Because if you don't have it, there's no way. There's no way an NBA player can feel safe going out on a basketball court anywhere in the country where there could be contact. It's not going to happen. LeBron James is not going to play. If they say, well, we don't have enough testing for the entire season, but we'll figure it out. That's not good enough. And the NBA knows that. Adam Silver knows that. But the fans don't. It's the bottom line. It's the bottom line. I I don't think enough fans realize how important the testing is going to be if the NBA season is going to be finished. And if the next NBA season is even going to be played. Because again, the United States is far, far behind a lot of other countries. It's just how it is. South Korea, man, and Germany specifically, those two countries are light years ahead when it comes to testing and when it comes to controlling the virus. I'll leave you on that note. One quick thing before I get out of here. Please, I know there's some states out there that are limiting uh, regulations on stay-at-home and things like that. If you do leave the house, please, for your safety and the safety of others, wear gloves, wear a mask. Please do it. I've seen too many people when I've gone out grocery shopping or running or hiking or whatever that are not wearing masks. Please do it for yourself, and more importantly, for everyone else around you. It's the right thing to do. We don't know everything we need to know yet about the virus. Please do it for your sake and for the sake of those around you. Thank you, as always, for listening to this show. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast. Until then, stay safe, stay happy, and I will talk to you next week on the Shock Shock Knicks podcast on the Posting and Toasting Podcast Network.